Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we really have a great program in store today. I mean, I've looked over our stories that you're going to cover with our broadcast partners, and we're going to focus on the false prophet of the end times. We do, Jimmy. We'll talk to everybody that we normally talk to, plus a few exciting guests. But before we do that, Jimmy, I want to talk to you about something. I know that this week you went to Louisiana Baptist University. We've had a longstanding association with them, but I know you went, Jimmy, and got your doctorate. Could you tell us what that was like? Well, thank you so much, Rick. And actually, I really achieved this back in 2020. And dad pushed me to get this. The president of the university, the new president of Louisiana Baptist University, encouraged me to come up and go through the process of walking. In fact, Dr. Greg Lyons is going to be on the program with us today. He was installed as the new president, the third president of the school, and he gave a great challenge to all those educators, pastors, missionaries, everybody that was there, and we're going to have him on the program today. Thank you, Rick. It's all about carrying on a vision this passion that we learned. Uh, you and I were taught Bible prophecy by our father, and we're carrying that on. And along with Louisiana Baptist University, we're carrying on the opportunity to teach Bible prophecy, not only to pastors here in the United States, but to pastors and educators around the world. And we'll focus more on that later. But thanks, Rick. And uh, folks, if you're interested, you could always go to lbu.edu and see Prophecy Today being involved with teaching Bible prophecy at LBU. Well, let's get started with the program, Rick. Enough of that stuff. We've got our broadcast partners standing by, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, R.C. Merle, and Mike Gender this week that will help us, our Legacy Series, and Dr. Greg Lyons at the end. Let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. That's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with me. He is a regular guest on our program. He's an author and an analyst that we use to talk about geopolitics and what is taking place around the world. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure. Ken, sometimes tongue-in-cheek, we play a little game called Where in the World is Ken Timmerman Today? Well, Ken, where do we find you today? Uh, I happen to be in uh, Sweden uh, with, with my wife and uh, outside of Stockholm on a farm watching the deer stroll across the fields. Well, that sounds lovely for sure. And of course, you do comment on geopolitics for us. You're in Sweden right now. They have an obvious connection with our first story that I'd like to talk about. I know Sweden is uh, applying for entrance into NATO, and President Erdogan of Turkey was holding that petition hostage. So now you're in Sweden, but the first story we want to talk about is President Erdogan of Turkey, of course, last week we talked he was having an election fighting for his life. How did it turn out? Much better than the polls had predicted. He came within half a percentage point of winning 50 percent, which would have been put him over the top in the first round. He goes to a runoff election. It looks actually much more favorable towards him than towards his opponent. Five percent of the vote was actually taken by a third party candidate who was an ultra nationalist and his voters are unlikely to go to the opposition, which is supported by the Kurds inside Turkey. They're more likely to go to Erdogan, who is seen as a nationalist. So Erdogan now looks like he's headed to re-election. Bad news for the world, bad news, in my opinion, for Turkey. They're plagued by soaring inflation, an economy 
which is not keeping pace. They're losing foreign investment and they're losing exports uh, as they uh, export instead radical Islam into Syria and elsewhere. Well, democratically elected, he may be, but if you continue to look, he certainly is moving Turkey down the path of authoritarianism, I would think. And also, uh, as a staunch Islamist, he is moving the country of Turkey into more of that Islamist mold, isn't he? Well, that's correct, Rick. It's been a long process. He's been careful about doing this for the first 10 years uh, that he's he was in power. The second 10 years, we're now at the end of 20 years that he's been in power. The second 10 years, he felt more uh, secure in doing so. So he reformed the judiciary to basically uh, stack the courts with his own judges. And he increasingly imposed Islamic rule and Sharia law. And he supported the Muslim Brotherhood in the Syrian civil war and elsewhere following the beginnings of the Arab Spring. Uh, so that is something that he's been doing systematically. Uh, we've seen it's, it's not a new development, if you wish, but it has now become institutionalized in Turkey. Turkey is now an institutionalized Islamist state continue to keep our eye on Turkey, but we'll move to other parts of the world and we'll go to a story that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. What is taking place in Sudan right now? They're still in crisis, aren't they? Sudan is still in crisis. Uh, The fighting is continuing unabated, not just in Khartoum, but it's gone down to Darfur, where remember they had a civil war for so many years. And uh, the Janjaweed militias, who were very big uh, in a, a big party in that civil war, they are at it again. Remember, they morphed into this rapid support force that is one of the big players in the fighting now happening in Khartoum. And they have returned to the Darfur. There have been reports of massacres of the minority Masalit people. These are African, non-Arab Sudanese, uh, a different ethnicity from the Janjaweed militias. And uh, the latest development is that you have both uh, the Saudi crown prince and Russia's Putin, who are offering to mediate in this conflict. And where is the United States? We're deploring what's going on. Well, just a few more questions to ask you, Ken. And I'll start with NATO. Of course, you're there in Sweden right now, who is currently trying to join NATO. But NATO is, they're now, say, going back to their Cold War days with actual military plans. Uh, This is an extraordinary development, a very necessary development, in in my opinion. It's a recognition of the new reality that Europe has actually been in since 2008, since Russia invaded parts of the Republic of Georgia. And in 2014, with Russia seizing and then annexing Crimea, the military leaders of the NATO alliance have been meeting in various uh, parts of Europe in Brussels. They're going to meet in Vilnius, Lithuania later on this summer. And they are now coming with thousands of pages of new war plans uh, to have a actual central NATO war plan against Russia. The first time they have had a NATO war plan really as an alliance in a big war since the Cold War ended in 1991. So they are going back to Cold War style planning. Obviously, Rick, the big shift here is that NATO will no longer be facing the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Most of those Warsaw Pact countries are part of NATO. So it's a much larger NATO, it's a much more powerful NATO, and it's a far more reduced Russia. But they are doing these war plans. 
Very interesting. Well, the, the next question I'd like to get you to talk about is the G7 countries are meeting in Hiroshima, Japan. What should we look for there? Well, yes, they are meeting in Hiroshima. Uh, it's a regular G7 meeting, but their focus, again, is Russia, Russia, Russia. They are talking about new sanctions on Russia, trying to strengthen the economic pressure on Russia. There's talk here of getting the Germans to reduce their own exports to countries bordering Russia there, where there may be some leakage of technology and supplies getting into Russia through, through bordering states. And they're trying to enhance the financial sanctions as well. You know, one of the things I find really extraordinary here, Rick, is we talk about NATO and we talk about the G7. Both of these are Western uh, inventions, right? They're Western organizations. The war planners, Rick, talk about their ability to see the battlefield much better than ever before. They have greater transparency onto what the Russians are doing because of satellite resources, because of drones and all of these sensors. And so they believe they will be able to predict Russian moves before they take place. And they're now claiming that they knew exactly what the Russians were doing in February of 2022 at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. Well, the public certainly didn't know. Uh, we were in the fog of war. In many ways, we remain in the fog of war even today, Rick, which is pretty extraordinary. You had uh, these Russian missiles, for example, the Kinzhal hypersonic missile that hit a Patriot missile battery earlier this week. The Russians claim it was completely destroyed. The Americans sent inspectors and, you know, just pieces of it were hit, not the entire system. It's true. There, there are many different pieces on the ground. There are missile launchers, there's radar, there are resupply trucks, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but clearly something was hit and taken out. We don't have better than that at this point. And the Russians are able to take out those air defenses. Ukraine is really at the end of its battle. They are having an increasingly difficult time in recruiting fresh troops. They're running it out of air defense missiles. Uh, they're running out of artillery. They are just barely beginning to get the Western tanks on the ground. They're using them in some of those offenses in Bakhmut again earlier this week, but they've already lost Bakhmut uh, in the uh, most recent days. The Russians have managed to take it all back. So the greater transparency that these war planners claim to have that the NATO leaders claim to have, that the G7 claim to have, is not making its way down to the public. Well, it certainly isn't, Ken, and I think that we could do a whole program on this as we look at it. The fog of war is still in place. It seems like whoever controls the media, even with all the free flow of information that we have in the world today, whoever controls the media controls the narrative, and that is what can sometimes set policy by these political leaders, isn't it? Absolutely correct. Who, whoever controls the media, controls the narrative, controls the public and public opinion. Well, Ken, as always, as you come here, and this is why we appreciate you coming on this program, because we get to take a look at what is going on in the world, what the media is saying, and then we kind of filter it through what we know, and we use you and your experience to educate our listeners, help us to get a good grasp of what is taking place geopolitically in the world. We appreciate you doing that. Ken, if people want to know more about you, where can they go to? Uh, just go to my website, KenTimmerman.com. It's just my name, KenTimmerman.com. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter and listen to various shows that I do around the country, including this one, obviously. Sounds great, Ken. Thanks again for being here, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. That's KenTimmerman.com. Thank you, Ken, for doing the program with us and for your insight. really is so helpful to find out what the rest of the world is doing and with a voice that we trust. 
Let's take a break, and when we come back, another voice that we trust, David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. A food crisis looms as war rages in Sudan. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Aid workers expect food prices to rise 25% over the next three to six months. If farmers can't access their fields to plant key crops between May and July, costs will skyrocket even more. Fadi Sharia with MENA Leadership Center says, We're going to see people dying either of starvation or lack of medicine in addition to the war that's happening. The Sudanese army and paramilitary forces remain locked in a fierce battle that shows no signs of stopping. Nearly a million people have been uprooted since mid-April. MENA Leadership Center trains local gospel workers so they can respond effectively to situations like these. Pray fighting will end and peace will return to Sudan. You can also partner with the MENA Leadership Center by giving scholarships to some of the uh, participants and supporting of the courses that we're doing for the people in Sudan. And culture affects nearly everything we do, how we speak, where we shop, what we do in a crisis, how to care for a sick person. The list goes on and on. Wycliffe USA's Sunny Hong says, Clashes happen when your actions don't meet another person's cultural expectations. Wise cross-cultural communication is important because culture affects how we share the good news of Jesus and how other people receive that truth. Different expectations make it difficult when you try to share the gospel with people who are coming from different culture. They don't take it as the good news. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. You need to understand their culture. If you try to do the way they expected you to do, then it communicates to them that they are cared for. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. This month, Slava Gospel Association is making available the free book, Much Prayer, Much Power by Peter Dynica, SGA's founder. Get your free copy when you click on the banner ad at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and joining us this week, as he usually does for this program, is our good friend Dave Dolan. He's a journalist that lived in Israel for 30 years. Dave, thanks for being with us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, the big story this week, and uh, it's a political story, but it's a it's a celebration story, but it uh, has all kinds of political ramifications, is the Flag Day or the Jerusalem Day March. Can you tell us what happened? Well, Rick, as uh, pretty much every year, commemorating the capture of the old city of Jerusalem uh, in June of 1967, this is the Hebrew calendar date, Thursday and Friday was, of the capture of that. And there's a parade through town. It starts on the western edge of Jerusalem always, and it goes down the Main Street, Jaffa Road usually, and ends up at Damascus Gate. Now, there's the controversial part. It enters into the old city in the Muslim section of the old city where Damascus Gate is located, and they march through there. They don't go up on the temple. They don't even end up in the old city itself. But uh, many people do uh, return to the Western Wall Plaza, which was packed with people on Thursday evening waving Israeli flags and chanting pro-Israel slogans and that sort of thing. Tens of thousands of people take part annually. There's always a discussion every year beforehand whether it's safe to do this, whether it's going to provoke Hamas and, and Islamic Jihad and Iran and everybody else to uh, attack, and of course there has been 
that uh, result in the past two years ago in particular we had a war basically erupt after you know the charges of incitement against the muslims and all of that so uh, that debate went on again this year the debate as to whether any government ministers or um, members of the Knesset, the parliament, should go up there on that day. In fact, three Likud members did go up, and also one cabinet minister went up to visit the Temple Mount. It's part of the status quo agreement, Rick, that Israel will have uh, access to the Temple Mount on Jerusalem Day every year, along with uh, extra days during Passover and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and a few other times. And then, of course, no Jews are allowed up on Muslim holy days for the most part. So that's the status quo arrangement. But once again, we had threats from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, which uh, is still engaged in uh, ceasefire talks uh, in Egypt uh, with indirectly with Israeli officials as to uh, whether the, this recent round of fighting has actually ended or not. We're still not certain of that. And Islamic Jihad leaders did say that this was a provocation and they might respond again to it. So Israel was holding its breath, but heavy security. There were clashes uh, between individual marchers and some Palestinians. Uh, some left-wing Israelis tried to block the main highway into Jerusalem to stop people coming up to join in the parade. Israelis, their fellow Israelis from that direction, the police intervened in that. There was a lot of tension, but it went off uh, fairly quietly considering the threats. And a senior security official did say, Rick, that Iran was pushing its puppet forces in the area to strike out at Israel. Whether that's true or not, we can't say, but he said they had intelligence to that effect. And it looks like Islamic Jihad is pretty broken after the beating it took over the past 10 days or so, uh, the past two weeks, really, uh, in the Gaza Strip. And uh, so far, no rockets have been aimed at Israel. Well, as I said, David, there's been quite the political fallout. Uh, we'll get to the Palestinian reaction to this, and you've already brought it up a little bit, but we'll talk a little bit more about some specific things that took place. But I'd first like to look at kind of the internal political reaction in Israel. This is actually driving a wedge between some of the members of Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition and maybe even threatening the viability of that coalition. Well, yes, Rick, as I've mentioned a couple times in recent months in our discussions, there is a deep divide between the ultra-Orthodox, we call them, the Haredim, the uh, ultra-religious Jews that uh, have two political parties in the government, uh, one the Sephardic Shas party, the other the Ashkenazi United Torah Judaism party. Well, the uh, one of the leaders of United Torah, Moshe Gatni, strongly urged government ministers and members of the Knesset and all Jews to stay off of the Temple Mount. That is their position in general. They and the chief rabbinate has a sign at the entrance, the Jewish entrance to the Temple Mount, if I can put it that way, the one usually used by Jews to ascend there, forbidding any Jews to go up there because you might accidentally tread upon the ancient site of the Holy of Holies, which, of course, only the high priest is allowed to enter uh, once a year with the blood of the Lamb. Of course, we don't have a temple there now. We don't have a high priest. But uh, nevertheless, they prohibit that entirely. Well, of course, the 
nationalistic Orthodox Jews, uh, led by Itamar Ben-Gavir, really now, who's in the government, and Smotrich, his partner. They are very much in favor of uh, building, rebuilding the temple, as we've said. They want Israeli sovereignty fully extended up there. And they would frankly like to see the Muslims expelled from there. They don't say that out loud, but that is more or less what they feel. So there's a deep division there. And uh, Ben Gavir's party issued a statement after Gaffney made this remark that Jews should stay away, saying, well, maybe you should leave the government. So uh, that would, of course, uh, greatly weaken the government. And I have to say, Rick, that this divide is a deep one between these two sides of the religious politic in Israel, as it were, the Orthodox world. And the uh, main issue it will be later this month, the budget, as I mentioned before, is supposed to be passed. And Gaffney says they will leave anyway if they don't get the promised funding, the funding that Netanyahu promised them for their schools. Their yeshivot, they're called yeshivas. Uh, and it's not clear that they will get that. So this is having political ramifications in his government for sure. And he's standing there in the middle, probably pulling his hair out a little bit. Well, as we know, and the scriptures tell us in Zechariah 12, that the Temple Mountain, the city of Jerusalem, is going to be a cup of trembling. It's going to be a center of controversy in the end times. And we're getting a foreshadow of that right now. It's striking discord and divide amongst the Israeli politics. I sent you some information talking uh, amongst the Palestinians, and they're talking about the the Jewish settlers storming the Temple Mountain. Now, the picture I sent you was, uh, they called it storming, but it was just a, a small group of uh, children, women, men, walking very quietly around the Temple Mount, which they are allowed to do according to the status quo, which we always talk about. So this divide, this center of controversy is as evident as ever, isn't it? It very much is. And, you know, Rick, I've said it many times, but it's worth repeating. It was precisely the Islamic capture of Judaism's holiest site on earth, the Temple Mount, that to their minds, proved the claims of the Quran to being the final revelation of truth, Muhammad the greatest of the prophets, etc., etc. So if the capture of that site proved that in their minds, what would the loss of that site uh, mean? Well, of course, in June 67, they lost total sovereignty, total control over the entire old city in East Jerusalem, but uh, the Temple Mount at its center. And that niggles them no end. It's humiliating. It seems to call into question the veracity of the claims of Muhammad and of the Quran, at least some of those claims in their minds. And so this is a holy duty a jihad duty to fight against Jews uh, being up anywhere near the Temple Mount, have, having any control over the old city, even the Jewish quarter, which, of course, all the Jews were expelled in 1948 when Jordan took that area in the war that the Arabs started. So um, that's the core issue. And, uh, you know, for nationalistic Israelis, it is important to go up there and also for sentimental reasons, it's one of the uh, world's greatest historical archaeological sites, really. And you've been up there. I've been up there many times. And, and it is a place worth visiting for sure, especially if you're Jewish. And uh, Israel's going to continue to insist on that right. And uh, they're trying to share this. But the Palestinians, frankly, don't want to share it. 
They want the Israelis gone entirely from Jerusalem. Well, they want the state of Israel gone, really, and uh, they still are working for that. David, the political setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Many of the things that you have told us today look like it's right out of the pages of what the Bible says is going to take place in the end time scenario. We appreciate you keeping up with what is going on in Israel and informing our listeners. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And I look forward to it as well, Rick. God bless. You know, Rick, I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 13, which we'll focus on a little bit today. And the beast there is the Antichrist. Paul writes that after the rapture, when the Antichrist appears, the Jews will accept this Gentile as their Messiah because those that rejected the love of the truth, that they might get saved, God will send them a strong delusion that they will believe the lie of Satan and accept this false Messiah. Well, that will be in the future. And one of the things that they will do, the Antichrist, the false prophet, energized by Satan, they will control the Temple Mount, the most holiest site on the earth in the city of Jerusalem. Well, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about this false prophet and the mark of the beast right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, this last weekend, I was in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, at a very important installation at a school, Louisiana Baptist University, the new president. We've had the academic dean on in the past, but I want you to hear the heart of the new president. And he is very committed to helping the body of Christ to understand the world in which we're living, to first to carry out the Great Commission. But in order to do that, people have to understand the urgency of the hour. And I so appreciate being able to be there with them this last weekend, which after watching the world news and what's taking place, I just had to get R.C. Merle back on the program. R.C., welcome back to the program this week. It's great to be back with you, Jimmy. R.C., before we went on the air here, you were telling me about a favorite verse that you carry around with you all the time in your pocket. Tell our folks about this verse. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, you know, from Habakkuk uh, 2.1, uh, it's a verse that lifts me up whenever I get tired or discouraged. And it says this, it says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer him when I'm corrected. Wow. 
I love that, RC. That is, you know what? Having that with you and you and I and uh, all of our broadcast partners, Rick, we understand and we have a passion for doing it. And we understand the calling that we have in order to alert the body of Christ as to what's taking place. Correct? That's right. absolutely right, Jimmy. Absolutely. Well, let me just start out this week then, and let's get right to it. There are two interesting financial articles that you posted on Prophecy Tracker this past week. And by the way, that website is prophecytracker.org. Go there. You'll find out all the information that you need. And RC keeps it updated daily, almost hourly, I would say. But uh, as, as every time I go there, you won't be disappointed in being aware of what's taking place. One of the articles from an interview with Florida governor and possible presidential candidate Ron DeSantis on central bank digital currencies and the other about the U.S. debt ceiling that appears to be a standoff between President Biden and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. What can you tell us about this? Jimmy, Ron DeSantis is, is makes no secret of his thinking on CBDCs. And I'm going to quote what he said. He said, sometimes government does things that may appear to be benevolent, but really are kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. But this is a wolf coming as a wolf. Mm. In other words, what they're not covering up their agenda, they're very open about it. CBDCs can be controlled by government and your purchases can be regulated. Now, DeSantis added this. He said, you're filling up too much with gas. Wait a minute. Climate change. You can't be doing that. Or, hey, you bought another firearm. No, no, no. Governments are going to get previously unheard of power. With wow. This with this uh, central bank currency. Wow. This article points out that Governor DeSantis went so far as to sign a bill to ban the future use of CBDCs in Florida. How will that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, if, or I should say, when the government makes the switch from paper money with no backing to mm. digital money with no backing, it will be difficult to imagine how one individual state could continue to use paper money. Jimmy, there are still an awful lot of Wall Street people running around saying digital money will never happen. They say things that uh, will stay the way they are. All that, however, should be blown away by an endorsement for digital money from the once bastion of conservatism, the Wall Street Journal, who said, and I want to quote it, America's financial system is outdated and CBDCs will modernize it. Now, with an endorsement like that from the journal, government officials and central banks have a green light. All they need now is a financial crisis to justify the change. Wow. Wow. You know, uh, RC, help me again. And, and, and I was st speaking with my wife this weekend and as we were traveling and she goes, what's the big deal about all the, the you know, AI and CBDCs, digital currency? Just briefly again, just tell us how this is so very important. Once, once money goes digital, virtually we don't own it anymore. Jimmy, right. It's probably the simplest way to put it. Yes. It now becomes a control of, of a central banker. So what will happen when money goes digital is that we, money will no longer be guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the government. It'll be guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the central, mm. unelected central bank. <laughs> so this is a completely new ballgame. And, and once people start to understand that this is a, just a gigantic change. These bankers are not elected. Uh, we have no say in who they are. These are all appointed by the president and then, and then brought in by the Congress. 
But this becomes a very dangerous situation. You know, and, and, and a little bit, and I'm going off script here a little bit, RC. But, you know, I know my in-laws, I know uh, a lot of folks that keep money in their homes, you know, for such uh, a rainy day or a situation where, you know, there's a run on the banks. And so people hide money. Buried in the, the mattress. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> buried in the mattress. But at some point, they're going to say your money's no good, correct? Yes, correct. The, the, the paper money will become worthless at some point. Uh, they'll probably be giving, uh, I would imagine the logistics will give people time to turn in those dollars to yeah. bring them back into their local banks. Uh, but eventually the switch will get pulled and all money will become digital. Mm, really? I mean, we're going to talk about the prophetic significance of that in just a moment. So I yes. do know, and, and we've all been following, uh, well, maybe we have, I don't know. But I know that uh, the media was telling us that President Biden cut short his visit to to Australia. I mean, after he was going to go there to from uh, G7 in Japan, and and uh, but he had to come back to handle the debt ceiling. So, R.C., tell us about the debt ceiling. Could that be the crisis to justify change to CBDCs? You know, I like to picture two cars speeding towards a cliff in a game of chicken as each driver tries to bluff the other into giving up before they both go off the cliff. Mm. You know, the, the government plays this game every few years when the House of Representatives and the White House are in different parties. Each one tries to bluff the other to gain political advantage. Now, back in 2011, there was a near default. And the ratings agency Standard & Poor's lowered the U.S. government's AAA federal bond rating to AA+, plus, where it has remained ever since. At the very least, with this stalemate, with both parties walking out on each other, another downgrade could be coming. Now, keep in mind, 2011, the debt was $14.7 trillion, less than half the $34.4 trillion it is today. Mm. But the main trouble centers around raising this debt ceiling, which is which really doesn't really exist, but since it is there, it can have tremendous impact. Republicans want to cut federal spending as a prerequisite for an agreement. Biden wants no restrictions on spending whatsoever. So to remedy the stalemate, nearly a dozen left-wing senators, including such minds as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and John Fetterman, <laughs> sent a letter to Biden on Thursday endorsing the use of the 14th Amendment which states the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. Mm. So a dozen U.S. senators want to use the 14th Amendment to justify paying America's debts while bypassing Congress. Now, even Janet Yellen has said in recent days that invoking the 14th Amendment is legally questionable and could create a constitutional crisis. So, Jimmy, in answer to your question, yes, it is possible that this could be a crisis that could change things. Wow. Okay. So say the unthinkable happens and the U.S. defaults on its debt. What will it look like? You know, going back to my game of chicken analogy, if both cars go off the cliff, and the United States defaults on the massive $31.4 trillion debt, the results would be catastrophic. The, the real impact would be that the U.S. dollar would no longer be the global reserve currency. And with dollars in many foreign reserve banks being returned to the U.S., holding dollars would be like holding a hot potato. Mm -hmm. U.S. interest rates would necessarily skyrocket. Equity funds, pension plans, and home prices plummet. 
nations holding federal paper like China, who has 859 billion, Great Britain, 668 billion, Japan with 1.1 trillion, and others will see their holdings reduced in value, leading to a sell-off of a magnitude one cannot even imagine in scale and timing. In short, Jimmy, the effect of a of a complete default would be very much like what the Apostle John prophesied in Revelation 6, 5, and 6, global hyperinflation. So a default is probably not now, unless a full-blown crisis is intentional. <laughs> world leaders, God using world leaders, according to Revelation 17, to accomplish his will. R.C., yes. it's so very important as we follow these things as a, as believers and worldwide. I mean, because let's face it, today, I mean, we're on uh, local radio stations, and, and we're so thankful for that, but we're on globally. We have people that listen around the world, and we want believers around the world to understand the urgency of the time that we're living, and we need to be, uh, really, we need to be busy about God's work, correct? Yes, absolutely right, Jimmy. That's what we do uh, all day. Uh, that's what we try to keep up uh, our readers with on Prophecy Tracker, and uh, and it, it's a busy job because the, the news just keeps coming all day. I kind of use the analogy of the I Love Lucy show with the chocolate. It just keeps <laughs> just keeps coming, Jimmy. <laughs> yes, it sure does. And, and it's even faster now, which just leads me to an understanding that what you're talking about is happening during the tribulation period. But before the tribulation period is the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. RC, thank you for keeping us aware today. And I look forward to being with you again. Please, please keep us aware of what's going on in this world and how it relates to Bible prophecy. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless you and to all of our listeners. Remember, you can go to RC's website, prophecytracker.org, to find out more information. You know, we started out this segment, uh, actually we finished the last segment, talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet. We've talked about that often on this program. We do see in Revelation chapter 13 that basically from verses 1 and 2 that the beast comes up out of the sea. And there is a connection between a leopard, bear, and a lion. These references to these symbols are looking back at Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel had a dream and sees these symbols as the coming Gentile world powers. This is basically saying that the Antichrist is a Gentile coming out of the revived Roman Empire. The ten horns of verse 1 and Daniel 7, the reason the Jews accept a Messiah, false Messiah, that is a Gentile is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 12. They will be caused to believe a lie. And Paul wrote about that, as I said earlier. This is this energized duet, uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist. Well, R.C. really is laying out the role of what allows the world to accept the mark of the beast and that will be enforced by the false prophet. So, Rick, this next story that uh, I wanted you to cover with our good friend Mike Gendron is about the Pope meeting with Zelensky of Ukraine. Rick, we've got Mike Gendron with us. 
Well, that's right, Jimmy. We've got Mike Gendron from Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries with us. He's been with us before. He has a ministry where he looks to equip and encourage the body of Christ to faithfully and effectively share the gospel. And he focuses a lot. Being a former Catholic, he focuses on a ministry to the Catholic people. Mike, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a delight to be on your program. Well, Mike, before we got on air, we were talking, and you have just finished what I thought was a very interesting project. Can you tell us about it? Well, sure. I'm often asked to debate Roman Catholic apologists, and I do so with the intent of being able to share the true gospel with Roman Catholics throughout the world. And so yesterday morning, we recorded a Zoom I guess it would be on YouTube and podcasts that I debated a Roman Catholic apologist on what is the gospel and how are we saved. And of course, anybody that studies Roman Catholicism knows that they have a false and fatal gospel. So anytime I get a chance to share the true gospel, whether it be in a message format or in a debate format, I always take advantage of the opportunity and I recently did a newsletter, Rick, on the reason why the Roman Catholic clergy is under divine condemnation. And I took people back to Galatians chapter 1, where the Judaizers added one requirement to the gospel, and the Roman Catholic Church has added six requirements to the gospel. So if the Judaizers were accursed by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we know every Roman Catholic clergy member as well, including Pope Francis, who not only does not represent historic Roman Catholicism, but also does not represent the Bible truth. Well, I'm assuming, Mike, that people can go to your website either now or soon and be able to find this interview that you did, proclaimingthegospel.org. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, it'll be available probably within the week. Well, great. Well, I originally called you because there was some items coming up from the Pope and the Catholic Church that I wanted to talk to you about, Mike. And the first one is a a big news story that came out this week saying that uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky went to see the Pope. Yeah, I find this fascinating. And some may ask the question, why in the world would Zelensky meet with the Pope? And the answer to that is because the Pope is considered one of the world's most powerful people due to his extensive diplomatic, cultural, and spiritual influence on the whole earth, not only to 1.3 billion Roman Catholics throughout the world, but also those outside the Catholic faith. So he also heads up the world's largest provider of education and health care. I think it's fascinating Rick, since we look at Bible prophecy, then Revelation 17, verses 1 to 2, we see the influence of the harlot. It reads, Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls came out and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And we know many waters represents the many nations of the world. In verse 2, With whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And so we see all the kings of the earth coming to the Vatican City because the Pope is the head of the state, and he has, as I mentioned, great influence over the world. And so that's why Zelensky came. And, of course, the Pope had an opportunity to share with him that he's praying for the peace uh, between Ukraine and Russia. 
But it's interesting, too, what took place during the meeting. Zelensky presented the Pope with an icon print of the Virgin Mary holding a shadowed child figure in place of Jesus. And supposedly this work commemorates the 243 children who died in the first 58 days of Russia's invasion back in February of 2022. So Zelensky also gave Pope Francis a plate from a Ukrainian soldier bulletproof vest with images of Mary. And so we see that uh, Roman Catholicism obviously elevates the Virgin Mary to the status of a sinless mediator. So both Catholics and the Orthodox esteem her very highly. Well, so interesting that the Pope is attempting to use this power that he has, and he's working with Zelensky. Can you just tell me, do you know what the end goal for Pope Francis here is? Well, sure. The ultimate motivating factor for Pope Francis is to unite the world under the power and influence of the papacy. So he refuses to call Russia out for its aggression against Ukraine because he's seeking to bring the Russian Orthodox Church into the Roman Catholic Church. And so he knows that if he calls out Russia, then that will cause uh, dissension among the Russian Orthodox people. So that's his underlying goal, is to make peace with the Russian people so his ultimate goal of ecumenical agenda and unity can be achieved. Very interesting to see, as you say, the effect and the, the, the position that the Pope and the Catholic Church hold as we look at what's going on. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what is going on in the Catholic Church. And this, uh, I thought, was interesting. Wanted to get your thoughts on it. Is Pope Benedict, the previous pope, predicted gender ideology would be the final rebellion against God? Yeah, I find that fascinating. It was back in 2014 that Pope Benedict predicted the gender ideology would be the next great challenge to the church. He also predicted it would be the final rebellion against God. And he uh, made this comment to uh, Dr. John Haas, a former member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. And he said, we've been hit with a tsunami of transgender ideology, adding that today Catholic healthcare institutions are being sued because they refuse to perform mutilating surgeries on men who want to be surgically altered to look like women or women who want to appear as man. So I find this interesting that the Pope called this the final rebellion against God. We don't know if it's the final rebellion, but we know it's definitely a rebellion against God because we know that God made male and female when he created the human race. And so This is definitely going against God's design for creation and also for marriage. But it's so interesting because here you have Pope Benedict, who now knows the truth. He died on December 31st of last year, and he got a lot of things right, even though he proclaimed a false and fatal gospel. But it's too bad that more people are not influenced by his recognition of this transgender ideology that seems to be running rampant, not only throughout the world, but also in religious institutions. Well, Mike, it's correct, isn't it, that Pope Benedict was much more of a traditional pope, and like you said, he did get some things right, and this is obviously one of them, and it seems well ahead of his time. It was not the issue back then that it is now. But this new pope, of course, rejecting many of even the Catholic traditions, and he's 
at odds with some of the members in his own church, isn't he? Well, he is. There's really a, a great division within the Roman Catholic hierarchy right now, and many Roman Catholic people have lost faith in trusting the Pope for what he says because he has made so many bizarre statements. In fact, some of this recently came forth in the news, and I believe it was uh, one of the Catholic Answers show, I think it was the Patrick Coffin show, released a video entitled Seven Pieces of Evidence that Pope Francis is an Anti-Pope. And so many people now are speaking out against the Pope. He recently celebrated his 10th anniversary, and he doesn't represent historic Roman Catholicism or even the uh, theology of the last two popes. He's made a lot of bizarre statements, including one that he said that goes against the Bible. Everyone is a child of the same God, he said. And I quote, many think differently or seek God in different ways, but there is only one certainty. We are all children of God. Of course, Pope Francis is ignorant of the scriptures because we know that everyone in this world is either a child of the devil or a child of the God. And the only way to become a child of God is to repent and believe his gospel. So the Pope got it wrong there. But he continues to demonstrate that almost everything he believes is really an invention of a warped postmodern mind of the Holy Spirit. This is really heartbreaking to hear. Pope Francis says, The paraclete creates all the differences among the churches, almost as if he were an apostle of Babel. And in the Most Holy Trinity, Pope Francis jokes, he said, Inside the Holy Trinity, they're all arguing behind closed doors, but on the outside, they give the picture of unity. You know, on God the Father, Pope Francis said, God cannot be God without man. Let us all think of the Father, of our Father, who cannot be without us. And so these are all heretical statements that go against God's word and actually insult the Trinity and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I just hope Roman Catholics would recognize that the only source on this earth for infallible truth is the inspired Word of God. They don't know who to trust right now, but we can point them to the Scriptures. There they can find truth. There they can find out that they've been deceived with a false and fatal gospel. And Rick, the nature of deception is that people do not know they're deceived until they're confronted with the truth. And so that's what we need to do as ambassadors to the King of Kings. We need to be truth bearers and point Roman Catholics to the infallible source for truth, God's inspired word. Well, Mike, as you look at it, the the most important thing in your ministry called proclaiming the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is truth. So the the most important thing we could do is spread the gospel, like you said, the uh, inspired word of God. Well, we have many listeners, and I'm sure we all have Catholic friends. I have Catholic friends myself. Can you give us a few practical tips that we can have uh, when we are witnessing, talking to our friends, our Catholic friends? Well, sure. Thank you for asking that. Roman Catholics believe they are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. However, the word alone is so important. We must point them to the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes it so clear. 
For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. So we need to point Catholics to Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. That's why we can be saved by grace, because Christ did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. And the promise of the gospel, Rick, is eternal, everlasting life. Roman Catholics do not have eternal life. They only have conditional life because whether or not they make it to heaven depends on what they do rather than what Christ has done. So we must call them to repent of all the things they're doing and put all of their hope and trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then can they have the assurance of eternal life. So I would just encourage your listeners as they witness to Roman Catholics, take them to 1 John 5.13 where John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is such good news to Catholics who only hope they can get to heaven Mm. one day. Excellent advice and excellent exhortation as well. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your ministry. Again, that's proclaimingthegospel.org. You want to find out more about Mike or the ministry, sign up for his newsletter. As always, Mike, thank you for being on the program, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Blessings to you. Great job, Mike. Remember, Revelation chapter 13, verse 12, gives us the false prophet's mission on earth, which is to force humanity to worship the Antichrist. He has all the authority of the Antichrist because, like him, the false prophet is empowered by Satan. It's not clear whether people are forced to worship the Antichrist or whether they are so enamored of these powerful beings that they fall for the deception, worship him willingly. The fact that the second beast uses miraculous signs and wonders, including fire from heaven, to establish the credibility of both of them would seem to indicate that people will fall before them in adoration of their power and message. Verse 14 goes on to say that the deception will be so great that the people will set up an idol to the Antichrist, the image of the beast, and worship it. This is reminiscent of the huge golden image of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. That's why it's so very important for us to understand what God's word says is going to take place in the future. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be taking a look at these nations that will want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with Rick. We're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, understanding Bible prophecy, understanding what God's Word says is so very important. And we challenge people that listen to us, not just to listen, but to get into God's Word and study it. We certainly do. And if you look at those goals and keep them in mind, we talked about at the start of the program, Jimmy, our association with Louisiana Baptist University. And this was a passion project of our father, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who founded this ministry, was to be able to teach the next generation the correct way to look at Bible prophecy and then how they can teach others about it. That's why I think it's so great that this past week, Jimmy, you did receive your doctorate in advanced eschatology from Louisiana Baptist University. Yes, it was a great honor. And thanks again, Rick. And that uh, website is lbu.edu. You can go there. We'll have information on our website. We want to encourage you. 
And uh, for the pastor, the layperson that's out there, continue your education, continuing studying so that you might be able to, in your neighborhood, on your corner, in your area of the world, and worldwide, globally as we live today, people will be able to uh, understand you have that hope that's within you. You can give them that answer. And that's what we are uh, exhorted to do through God's word and the writings of the scriptures. Well, Rick, one of the ways that dad left a legacy is his legacy series. Our study today on the legacy series will be found in Psalm 83. And that's where we start our study in Psalm 83. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the legacy series. Psalm 83 is a psalmist prayer, praying that the Lord would intercede in a time of great trouble for the Jewish people. Let me just read a little bit of Psalm 83 to you. Verse 1. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. Be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tubal, and they that hate thee have lifted up my head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. In other words, here is this enemy of yours, God, who are coming up against us, the Jewish people, your chosen people. They've gone into meetings. They have crafty counsel coming together. They're going to come out of the meeting. Here's what they're going to say. Verse 4. And they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Now, that's almost a direct quote from Hamadinejad on July the 9th, 2008. 2008, July the 9th, he stood in Tehran, Iran, among 4,000 Islamic radical leaders. He said, we must wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and her name be forgotten forever. That was the ninth. On the twelfth, Hezbollah attacked from southern Lebanon, attacking northern Israel. And there ensued a 60-day war. It did not break into a full Middle Eastern war. But they were trying to move. Hezbollah are the surrogates put in southern Lebanon in 1982 by Ayatollah Khomeini. They're the ones that killed 252 Marines in the barracks there in Lebanon. They have a desire, one desire, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. I could stay here for probably the next couple of hours telling you how the Iranian influence is taking over the entire Middle East. What has happened in Egypt is now they have renewed ties with Iran and they're following the Iranian pattern for a purpose of setting up an Islamic Republic. They have sent all kind of grad missiles. The Katusha rockets are coming into Israel, but I've seen personally stood and touched grad missiles with the name manufactured in Iran from the Gaza Strip into modern day Israel. They have an influence in what's happening in Lebanon. Sheikh Nasrallah, who is head of Hezbollah, this terrorist organization, sponsored, paid for, equipped by Iran and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Nasrallah has taken control of the country of Lebanon. They are no longer a sovereign state. Read the news. It's there in the news as plain as the notes on your face. These nations are moving to take control. Notice here two states that are going to be included in addition to the states I've already talked about. 
Notice here in verse 6, it says, and the Ishmaelites. Now, where did Ishmael go to live? I told you, Arabia. So he establishes Saudi Arabia. They'll be a part of this mix of this coalition of nations. Look here at the last one in verse 7. Tyre, the land of Tyre. That's modern day Lebanon. And so now we see the picture. Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey, Russia. These nations form a coalition to come to wipe out the Jews. Let us wipe them out that their name be forgotten forever. Go back to chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel just a moment. Chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 38... It tells us the time when they're going to attack. Look at verse 8. And after many days thou shalt be visited, and in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations. That's talking about the Jewish people. Out of 108 nations of the world, over the last 100 years, Jews have come to live in the land of Israel. Now notice what it says. And they are going to come, and they're going to dwell safely, all of them in the land. Look up here in verse 11. And thou shalt say, oh, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go up to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. That's a military terminology. The land are the cities of unwalled villages. You see, when Ezekiel wrote this book, he didn't know anything about F-16 fighter jets. He didn't know anything about the Mark the tank, the most sophisticated tank in the world. He didn't know anything about the Apache attack helicopter that could maneuver unbelievably any place in a war zone. Ezekiel didn't understand that. He knew that the only defense the Jewish people had was a wall around the city. So all he could say was, when they live in unwalled villages, they've laid down their defenses. They no longer are defending themselves. When is that? I told you last time we got together. The rapture takes place. The Antichrist appears and he confirms a peace treaty. The Jewish people duped by the devil believe he's their Messiah. Peace has come. The kingdom is in place. They lay down their weapons. They live in unwalled villages. And these nations attack. They attack. Joel chapter 2 and verse 3 says, The mightiest militia to ever be formed on the face of the earth comes to Jerusalem to wipe them out. Because that worldwide caliphate must be set up in Jerusalem. The Mahdi, most likely the 12th Imam. Hamadinejad says, He's alive. He's about to appear. We're living in the apocalyptic age. I am the forerunner. I am the one leading the way for the Mahdi, Mahdi, Arabic Messiah. He will appear. He will bring all the world together and go to Jerusalem. Not Mecca and Medina. Jerusalem to set up the worldwide caliphate. This militia The largest one ever on the face of the earth can only be formed by one people. The 1.5 billion Islamic people who, if they are dictated to by the Quran and the Hadith, their holy books, must wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. 
The house of Islam requires it. Nobody can live in that land except Muslims. What happens? Go back to Ezekiel 38. Let me close with this. Starting in verse 18. Notice what it says. Ezekiel 38 verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Look here in verse 21. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all of the mountains, saith the Lord God. Look at verse 22. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him upon his bands. That's including all of the people that live in their homes countries. The military operation is going to be there in the Middle East to take out the nation of Israel. But all of his bands is referring to all of their nation from which they come. And notice he said, I'll rain hellfire and brimstone upon them. Chapter 39, verse 1. Therefore, Thou son of God, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the old Gog, the, pre- the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now I'm reading from the King James Bible. If you have another translation, you may not have this. But here's what the King James says in the Hebrew word. Look it up. And I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee. Turn thee back and wipe out five sixths of all these people. Let's just keep reading. Rest of verse 2. And will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause the arrows to fall out of thy right hand. And thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all of thy bands, and the people that is with thee. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beast of the field, to devour. All of these nations, Syria, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, uh, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Russia. They all come against Israel. And they're wiped out by 5-6. They're wiped out. They're rendered inoperative. And the Muslim world has no longer that power on the world. Thus, God's plan prophetic scenario unfolds with the antichrist ruling over a false religion in rome islam must be wiped out because islam is an exclusive religion 9-11 was the beginning of the end it started to unravel up to the rapture islam major player in this world rapture islam continues on until they form the coalition and go against God's people and they are wiped out. It's never in the history of the world. It's never been just like this. Stages said every actor or nation in place to attack the Jewish state. Curtain is about to go up on the final drama as foretold in God's prophetic word. One thing holds the fulfillment of these prophecies back. One thing, the rapture of the church. And then these prophecies are fulfilled. That's where we are in history. This moment, how do we deal with it? How then ought we to live? Father, thank you again for this divine description of the days of destiny 
seemingly describing the days in which we are living. It's unbelievable to simply open the pages of Bible prophecy, read from the text, and allow ourselves to see this prophetic passage as a spotlight on current events. Dr. Walford used to say, this is indeed setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Let us realize where we are in your time. Allow this to make an impact on our lives so then we can live expectingly for you to come in the urgency of the moment. Thank you for what you're going to do because we've studied your word this day. My precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Indeed, a study of the prophetic scenario found in God's word for the last days reveals that an alignment of nations will form a coalition to go to Israel with the intent to wipe the Jewish state off the face of the earth. Current events indicate that the stage is set for these prophecies given by the ancient Jewish prophets to be fulfilled and seemingly in the very near future. The world today seems ready for these prophecies to be fulfilled. Please join us next week as we continue to learn how current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Don't go anywhere. The new president of Louisiana Baptist University will be with us, Dr. Greg Lyons, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A food crisis looms as war rages in Sudan. The Sudanese army and paramilitary forces remain locked in a fierce battle that shows no signs of stopping. If farmers can't access their fields to plant key crops between May and July, costs will skyrocket. Nearly a million people have been uprooted since mid-April. Mean Leadership Center trains local gospel workers so they can respond effectively to situations like these. Pray the fighting will end and peace will return to Sudan. Meanwhile, culture affects nearly everything we do, how we speak, where we shop, what we do in a crisis, how to care for a sick person, the list goes on and on. Wycliffe USA's Sonny Hong says clashes happen when your actions don't meet another person's cultural expectations. Wise cross-cultural communication is important because culture affects how we share the good news of Jesus and how other people receive that truth. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the portion of the program where we normally take a look at the book. We're going to do that. We're going to take a look at the book. And we do that by examining the events that we are talking about on the program that really uh, are related to Bible prophecy. And we can do that because we have an understanding of God's Word, which is so very important. But today, I want to introduce to all of you our new friend. He's a new friend, an old ministry that's been a part of Dad's ministry in the past, Louisiana Baptist University. Uh, I told you at the outset of the program the privilege that I had to be there I want to introduce to you Dr. Greg Lyons. Dr. Lyons, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's (laughs) such a joy to be here. Dr. Lyons, I wanted to have you on the program today. And first of all, congratulations at the installation as the third president of Louisiana Baptist University. But uh, as I look at your resume, as I look, you're doing stuff that's around the world. You're in the Philippines, you're in Cambodia, you're in Thailand. You have a global vision. Could you tell our folks a little bit about what you're doing? Yes, it's such a privilege to serve with LBU. We are primarily in a church planting movement Mm. and sharing the gospel to many cultures. We base out of Asia, and we are moving across Southeast Asia into South Asia, also into Africa. And we plant churches, we reach young people, train them for the ministry, and then launch them out to plant other churches. We've planted about 250 churches so far, and in multiple countries, and we got more in the pipeline. This great honor of serving with LBU uh, is just the next level of what we are trying to do with a U.S.-based partnership and being Mm. able to expand the platform of LBU. We're looking forward to taking this uh, and the biblical training in partnership with you, Jimmy, and uh, the prophecy program uh, around the world. I'm so looking forward to it. Folks, if you're interested in what he does, and I'm looking at drgreglyons.org is the website. Go there. He talks about the programs, youth camp, medical missions, education, his global initiative, vision for, and I I like the fact that Louisiana Baptist University, that we're going to be able to partner with you and carrying forth that message, the importance of eschatology, Bible prophecy, Um, helping others uh, reach that understanding of why we do what we do, what our purpose is, and the urgency of the hour. But Dr. Lyons, and again, I say thank you so much. It was a privilege to be there to witness this event yesterday on Thursday in Shreveport, Louisiana. But you gave a great message to those educators, those pastors, those that uh, had their undergrad, their their masters, and their doctorate, 
and they had accomplished this. Can you just give us a little bit of that challenge that you gave to those pastors and those educators there as you gave your installation uh, address? Yes. I challenged these men and women who were graduating with their varying degrees to refocus not Mm. only on the academic training and their Bible knowledge, but to bring action to their feet. You know, we can know a lot about the Bible, but if we don't reach people who know nothing about the Bible, then we we just keep it all internally. Mm. And that's not the will of God. The will of God and the whole uh, purpose of the Bible is, and and the message of Jesus Christ, is to, for all people to hear, all people to put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what our main focus must be. So I challenge them, didn't matter what you graduated with, in what field, but to put the Great Commission in your heart, in your life, and move the gospel forward. Yes. There were three points that you gave when you gave this challenge. Yes. Uh, The first one is that we see the world the way Jesus sees the world, Mm. as sheep having no shepherd. Mm. And we need to be able to take the gospel to people who have never heard. You know, there. I think there is a glut of the gospel in certain areas of the world and a great famine of the gospel in other parts of the world, and we must focus on that. And then we must see the opportunity that God provides us mm-hmm. the way He sees it. Uh, we can get all bogged down in how difficult it is to do ministry, but God continually opens doors for us. We've got to walk through them. And then the path is uh, what Paul mentions in, in Timothy about training other people. Once we have heard the truth, we must train others. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're after, uh, to cascade to the next level and pass on that DNA of the Great Commission to the next generation. Wow. Dr. Lyons, I appreciate that message. I, as, as I was sitting there and you were challenging me and, and, and all the others, uh, to the right and to the left of me, these men that were getting their doctrine, we're carrying that message back. We're edifying and educating the body of Christ. We're doing that. It's so very important in the times in which we're living and understanding God's word. Dr. Lyons, it's so very important that people know what God's word says so that we understand why we are doing what we're doing. Correct. That's true. Uh, if you don't have a clear understanding of God's Word, and specifically in knowing it in light of the prophetic passages, you won't, you won't be able to prepare yourself <laughs> to face the challenges of this generation. Congratulations, Dr. Greg Lyons, new president of Louisiana Baptist University. Folks, you will want to find out more about this organization, about the, his vision globally, We are in a global uh, time in our lives, not just dedicated just to our certain neighborhoods, although that's very important. We need to understand how we can study, become a part of an organization to further our education, to be a part. We'll let you know about that in the future. But Dr. Greg Lyons, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for your vision, and congratulations being installed as the third president for Louisiana Baptist University. God bless you. It was so good to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Lyons. Folks, everything that's happening today, it's easy to understand the hour in which we're living. With seeing those things, 
The rapture of the church can't be too far away. We need to understand our role and to be busy about the Lord's work. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.